I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's the show and podcast where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. Many of us probably know only the outlines of the story of the founding of Jamestown, Virginia. English settlers arrive in the spring of 1607, more than a decade before the Pilgrims would arrive at Plymouth, Massachusetts. The tumultuous two years that follow include poverty and privation, disease and conflict with native tribes. Captain John Smith rules with strict discipline, and when he returns to England in 1609, the colony is plunged into a winter of deepest hardship. Fast forward to Captain John Rolfe's marriage to Pocahontas and happier times. I think we all know the outlines of that. But we meet the central character of Lauren Groff's new novel at the colony's most desperate moment. She has chosen to flee, and in her escape, we are told, has left behind her everything she had, her roof, her home, her country, her language, the only family she had known. The novel takes us on the run with this young woman into the untouched wilderness of America in the 17th century. In introducing it, Lauren Groff writes, Don't tell my other books, but this novel is the book of mine that I hold closest to my heart. And that surprised me, because Groff's previous work includes Matrix, Fates and Furies, and Arcadia, all terrific novels. The new novel is titled The Vaster Wilds, and Lauren Groff joins us from Gainesville, Florida. Lauren, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. It's so delightful to be on the show. Thank you. So we're going to come back to why you hold the book so close to your heart, but but I'm interested in how you imagined the untouched wilderness of America down to the most jewel-like detail. I mean, you managed to somehow wipe up all modernity <laughs> and went back to to that moment. So so how'd you do it? Well, it was a it was a tremendous pleasure to imagine wiping out all of civilization, uh, you know, Western civilization and uh, resetting um, in some ways back to the beginning part of when colonization happened. Of course, the Spanish had been in the Americas for over a century at the at the point of my book. So it was really delightful. I read a lot. You know, I did I, my my research into the archives is one of the great joys of my life. And I could probably spend the rest of my life just <laughs> sifting the books. Uh, but after some time, you have to actually sit down and write the novel at hand. Uh, it was just joyous reading, basically. Yeah, this is something that um, I talked to Richard Powers about with Richard Powers about because when he was working on the overstory, he was taking these long walks into the Smoky Mountains, into the forests there. And he was trying, kind of training his eye to see the woods anew. And I got the sense that you were maybe not on walks because you live in Florida and this is set in Virginia, but that you were trying to take your mind into that place where you you wipe out the familiarity, which is hard to do. True. And actually, I wrote most of this book in New Hampshire, where we spend the summer. So it's um, it feels a little less alien to the experience of the girl in the book um, than perhaps it would be in Florida. But I did actually, just like Richard Powers, 
I love to take long walks in the woods. This I take my dog with me because I'm afraid of bears. <laughs> um, but I, I really I enjoy just going out there and sort of trying to sit there and strip off all of the the parts that are not native, right? To see oh, this tree, which is such a beautiful tree, probably doesn't belong here. So what would be here instead? What would a mast year look like, right? What would the the wilderness, which had been cultivated by the original peoples, what would it have looked like? It's, it's an act of imagination and love, for sure. You know, I want to possess the ability to do this. You know, I, I live near woods, spend a lot of time, if not in the woods here in other places. But I find that I inevitably, you know, when I'm like, pay attention, look around, see the, be in the moment, you know, inevitably my mind is swirling off into other places before I can even catch it. So I I want that discipline that, you know, Richard Powers describes and that you describe, and I don't know how to capture that. Uh, do you meditate? Because <laughs> no, no, I'm it. a failure at meditation <laughs> too. See, no, everyone's see. That's the beauty of meditation. Everyone's a failure at it until you. <laughs> I know you get a little bit better. Yeah, just a little bit. You move, move further in, in increments. Wait, 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 what's your meditation life like? Well, I uh, I do a lot actually. I wake up in the morning and I go up to my office at very early at five in the morning, and I have this mala of tiger eye, and so I just breathe and count the beads. And then later, I have a yoga practice that I do every day. So I, you know, I have a, a brain that spins in constant um, direct dark directions, and so it's the way that I keep it back in the body, and I keep myself from going into the dark places. That's interesting that you would say that it spins to dark places. Why dark? I mean, what? like what? Well, I'm an anxious person. And uh, we're in the Anthropocene, right? We're at the, the end of what we know of, um, of nature. Uh, and everything is changing. And, you know, I don't know what the future holds. And I think that that anxiety is really terrifying, especially if you're a person who has children, as I do. And um, so that's the real anxiety for me. It's climate change. It's um, not knowing the shape of the world, the, the warming world, the, the terrible things that are happening all the time. But those are the things that keep me up at night. It's this, it sounds like it's this idea that um, something is coming to an end and we don't know how the next thing begins? Perhaps. I mean, there's never been a time in human history when people have felt, you know, existentially completely solid, um, uh, when people haven't felt as though we were about to be wiped off the face of the earth by plague or nuclear super armaments, right? I mean, there there's always a threat to humanity, um, but it does feel extraordinarily large and urgent and fast right now. I mean, is it fair to say that you infused some of that into, you know, how this this girl contemplates what she's leaving and what she's going to? I think we get a taste of that. Absolutely. This is a book that's trying very hard to grapple with where we are now. I know it's a historical fiction from over 400 years ago, but it's also, my, my vision of historical fiction is that it always speaks to the moment that uh, 
the writer was writing it, right? So it's always about the contemporary world, whether we know it or not. Um, and so this book is deeply invested in existential ideas, not only in individual existential ideas, but also, you know, the, the ideas about humanity and the way that we have come um, to where we are now. Yes. You know, I, I made a note um, of of a paragraph. I, I love the way you put this together. And I'm thinking as you're describing this, that this also fits what you've just said. The paragraph says, here there is nothing, only land. All the earth and mountains and trees remain innocent of story. This place is itself a sheet of parchment yet to be written upon. I mean, what you've just said is, yes, we can imagine that in 1609 in America, but we can also imagine that in some ways now, because as we've noted, we don't know what's coming yeah, except that, uh, you know, that is um, an idea of the protagonist at the beginning of right. the book when she really does have a lot of the European bigotry in her and the way that she sees the world is through a European vision. And by the end of the book, she has a completely different idea of this this earth. It's not a sheet of parchment to be read upon. It's already been written mm -hmm. upon. She just doesn't know the stories, right? I mean, and that's a profoundly different place to be psychologically. But we don't know the story either of what's coming for us. I mean, in in that sense, that's all the anxiety, right? That's this unsettledness that those of us who are following um, what's what's happening with a warming world feel so much anxiety about. We don't know what's coming and the story is yet to be written. Absolutely. There's also unexpressed grief. I mean, we haven't had a chance to collectively express the grief of vanishing species, right? I mean, that is one of the saddest things I can imagine. Um, we just don't, we don't get together to, to mourn it. I have friends, uh, really amazing friends in Houston, who are anthropologists who um, worked with Icelanders hmm. to um, hold a funeral for a glacier because, you know, glaciers, especially in Iceland, are seen as human mm -hmm. almost. I mean, they're they're described in maternal terms. They have milk, right? Um, they have legs, right? They... Um, they're, they're, uh, they're, they have personalities. And so when a glacier died in Iceland, they they had a funeral for this glacier. And it was one of the most beautiful, meaningful things. And we just have never, we don't do that on a grand scale. And we really should, I think, uh, for catharsis and for moving um, into a place where fewer things are lost to us. Have you been to Iceland? I just came back. I have. Oh, oh it's yeah. my favorite place on the planet. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> I know. Um, what's so, I feel like it is like nowhere else that I've ever been because you feel like what lies under the earth's crust is so close and so accessible in a frightening and yet really majestic way. What was your sense of it? Absolutely the same. Yeah, I also had a sense of it being profoundly haunted for some reason. Maybe it's because yeah. it's the the crust of the earth is so close to the surface, but um, and maybe ghosts don't have a place to cling to. Mm, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but it's so profoundly haunted, and and I think it's the humans who are there too have somehow 
encapsulated that in the language. I think Icelandic is a haunted language also. I think it's just this extraordinarily beautiful reciprocal place where human and landscape have created this sort of beautiful um, like symbiosis. Mm. It's so magnificent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, Before I was there with a group of book lovers, and so we were reading some of the literature of Iceland, including one of the classics by John, I think his middle name is Carl's Stevenson. Um, And he writes about the fact that Icelanders do not fear ghosts as kind of the scary things that we do, that there is an acceptance that they surround us and they will have a presence in your life and they won't necessarily be malevolent, which I thought is a really interesting way to think about yeah, the spirits. That's, that's <laughs> the way I think, too. I've always seen them. You do? <laughs> yeah, I do. I've always seen them. I was raised in a house from 1793 in Cooperstown, New York, and every night a ghost sat at the edge of my bed and I could feel the ghost. And then when you looked, you just saw sort of like a column of, of gauzy light. Uh, so yes, I see ghosts everywhere I go. And you know, I have a physicist friend who has this theory that um, ghosts are really just a fold in space time. And so what you're seeing is the the house itself remembering um, it through a fold in space time. It's so very beautiful. Were you fearful of, of the presence of that spirit? What did you say to yourself about about it? Uh, yeah, at first I was fearful because we moved into the house when I was seven, and mm-hmm. a young child is always, I think, scared of right. the unknown. Um, but over time, I got less and less scared as less and less happened. Right? I was afraid, but if nothing happens day after day for you know ten years, you you end up coming to terms and I started talking to the ghost and it stopped visiting when I started talking to it so I don't (laughs) know what happened there maybe it was just annoyed by me (laughs) what did your parents say when you told them that you thought a ghost was sitting at the end of your bed oh they're both scientists like they they, my dad's a doctor my mom was a high school biology teacher like there's no way that they believe me (laughs) although later my mom was in a rental house, and she felt a ghost push her into the refrigerator. So maybe she is a, a convert to my way of thinking. I love that. See, the ghosts will win, <laughs> right? Um, I have to say, I imagined you uh, as you plotted your character's um, escape, her journey, I guess. I imagined you with 17th century maps of America spread out on your desk and maybe some old books and journals about the plants and the animal life. Because I love what you've written in about what the fauna and the flora was like in this time. So where'd you find all that? Well, I did. Yeah, I had all of that for sure. I mean, the beauty of the internet is that you can find almost everything you need, right? Um, Even the, the, uh, the replica of the original documents, a lot of those are online as well. A lot of the, the maps are online as well. I live in Gainesville, Florida, but I have no uh, way to access the archives at the University of Florida. So I do rely a lot on uh, the internet. And then I had this wonderful um, uh, fellowship at Radcliffe Institute who helped me. She went into Widener Library and she just dug up a lot of things for me. And that was very, very helpful as well. So uh, I have, I, I had a secret um, 
like superstar helping me out with that. <laughs> so what are those what are those uh, maps look like? I mean, when I picture these old maps, of course, I picture the old European maps where one side of it says here be dragons or something like that. Um, what are those maps that you were looking at look like? Yeah, they don't have a one-to-one um, relationship to the maps that we know, right? right. Of course, they, you know, they were uh, largely speculative, but there are traces of of things that we uh, know the, today, right? I mean, I think, you know, they thought, for, for instance, that the Chesapeake at one point was sort of the Northwest Passage all the way through the continent of North America. Of course, we know <laughs> yeah. that that is not the case, but so... <laughs> So there are a lot of, you know, just speculations and um, and weirdnesses in scale, but they're 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 way better than I could have done for sure mm-hmm. by just you know rowing a boat up a couple of rivers. <laughs> they really figured a lot of things out. <laughs> I mean, you also have to ensure as you plotted this girl's travels that she doesn't know what she can't know. Right. So. You know, what we now know of the topography and the geography of the land back then and then all the other all the other stuff. Um, how does that work? Well, yeah, she had to she was running away from the fort at Jamestown, of course, but she only knew very, very vaguely where she was going. Right. She heard that there were Frenchmen to the north and there were. She heard that there were uh, Spanish to the south. And she chose French because she knew a little bit of French (laughs) because um, she she had a very poor working knowledge of French. She had no idea the the vastness of this country or how many days she would have had to actually travel to get to the French. She she sort of assumed that um, her lands that she was passing through was the size of England which is you know, much smaller than North America. And so she just sort of assumed that she would make it to where she needed to go to, to the French. Uh, and of course, the book knows that that's almost ridiculous, but she does not. <laughs> that's funny the way you said the book knows. You reminded me, I did an interview yesterday with um, writer Carol Dunbar, and we were talking about point of view. And I told her about how every now and then you have this, what I think is a really brave way of zooming out and zooming in and telling and being omniscient and then and then not doing it. And it feels like that's the capability of a master, confident writer. Oh, that's nice. I mean, that's the, the capability of the third person, for sure. And I, you know, I was a literature, French and English literature major, double major, uh, and I mostly studied 19th century literature, and that's what people in the 19th century did, right? They telescoped out, they telescoped in all over the place. Uh, it's not, this is interesting. I do a lot of reading of contemporary work. I think people have become uncomfortable with the omniscient third person. <laughs> yeah, yes. That's it's why it's notable. Because, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's because of, um, maybe secularization. I think that people possibly are just not comfortable with the idea of a god eye in the sky wow. coming in and out. Uh, that's what I blame it on. Um, <sighs> but I don't actually know exactly 
why that is. It's just that everything nowadays that I've been reading, a lot of things are in the first person, right? Because that is at least sort of a sight of some authority that is not um, vague and up in the sky. But I love the third person. I'm a big fan. <laughs> okay, that is so interesting that you think this is this is really about the fact that many of us are falling away from some faith tradition, that we don't know yeah. what we believe about that. Or a singular um, overlooking viewpoint that's sort of seeing all at one point. Yeah, I actually, I, I do. I, I trace it back to that. I think that there's, uh, the trust has eroded in the omniscient eye in the sky. What what I was saying about this yesterday was, um, I found that it didn't jar me out of the story. That That's what I mean by, it's so, uh, I don't know, like, it's it's subtle and yet necessary where it happens that I I didn't find that I was disrupted in some ways from my experience of the story. Does that make any sense? That is the ideal. Yes, yeah. that is what one wants. I mean, that's what you get when you read Middlemarch, for instance. Right. When you hear George Eliot's incredibly wise and golden voice sort of seeping into you from above uh, and then lifting out again, almost like this glorious godlike fog um so that's that's sort of that's that's the the writer of the omniscient yeah you know there's a lot of descriptions of the girl running and it in some ways it frees her mind and i feel like there are times when the running returns her to herself and i i just i grabbed a couple of lines here from the novel Into the night, the girl ran and ran, and the cold and the dark and the wilderness and her fear and the depth of her losses, all things together, dwindled the self she had once known down to nothing. Um, So you run, right? You really understand this. Yes. But actually, so a lot of the the pain and suffering in the book is actually inspired by the person to whom the book is dedicated, which is my sister who was a, um, an Olympic uh, triathlete and is now doing Ironmans and just sort of amazing. Cause she's 41 wow. years old. Oh and she keeps gosh. winning Ironmans. Wow. And yeah. She's amazing. She's really, really, really cool. Um, but she's the one who knows and, and has sort of talked about somewhat obliquely about um, the way that their ecstasy and suffering are extreme athletic pursuits, right? I mean, it's it's going back in some ways to the the female medieval mystics that I studied to write mm-hmm. Matrix. Mm-hmm. Right? There's this this really intricate mind body spiritual connection that's happening when w- one's physiology is really under a lot of pressure um, in the cold. Uh, with starvation, right? But it's, it's it's interesting that that's when the moments of ecstasy sort of bloom inside of the mystics and inside of the long distance athlete. So, do you do you achieve a sense of of what your sister describes and what you've described in the novel? Do you do you kind of get a taste of it, or do you have to push yourself to the point of Olympics or Ironmans to really understand that? Well, that's exactly it. I can't and won't. 
be in an Ironman. <laughs> I did one triathlon and I got third, but there are only four people. The- <laughs> and yet bravo anyway. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, no, yeah, no, I, I am a physical weakling when it comes to pain. I mean, I exercise every day, but I don't like the pain. My sister, I think, likes the pain. She, she In fact, she talks a lot about something called the pain cave, where the deeper you get into, say, an Ironman, um, the more difficult it is, obviously. And so you create this this cave of the mind and you go deeper deep and deeper into the darkness of the pain. And it almost makes it, it does make it bearable, but it almost makes it into something that you're actively curious about and seeking, uh, which I find so astonishing. I mean, that is some grade a psychological trickery happening but uh she's so this book part of this book i mean this book came from a hundred different directions but one of those directions was trying to understand what my little sister goes through on a daily basis when she pushes her body to absolute physical limit that a human could could get to you know what i think would be worse than actually experiencing it is anticipating the pain cave I mean, I know. <laughs> it just just the idea that it's going to happen on a certain date and it's going to be so impossibly hard and I know it's coming. I'd love to know how she she, you know, approaches that. Works with Me that. Me too. Yeah. No, that was I mean I went into a profound depression while I was pregnant with my children because I was so afraid of the pain cave. <laughs> of, <laughs> really? Of giving birth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What'd your I sister mean, tell you about that? Oh, no, I have no idea. She did it herself without any drugs, so I have oh. no idea. Oh. I think she's just a, like a, a, a special human. <laughs> <laughs> so has she, just I have one other question about this because this is very curious. Um, has she ever said... Uh, you know, I see the day coming when I will not be able to sustain this, or I don't, or I do not want to enter the pain cave anymore. Yeah, I think it has less to do with the pain cave and more to do with the the fact of an aging body. Um, But I do have to say, it's kind of brilliant and beautiful. Women tend to have higher pain tolerance mm-hmm. the older they we get, right? Um, and I don't exactly know why, but that's why she was able to go from Olympic distance triathlon into Ironman triathlon um, and without, without a hitch, right? I mean, she was able to just like glide into it. Uh, but I think she, I mean, she's back in school. She's getting her PhD uh, to be a psychologist. So she does know that one day that will end. She will never stop pushing her body to the limit. I think she will do that until she's 85 and she'll look like she's exercising so much, but um, I I watch with wonder and awe. (laughs) Yes. And I listen to your story with wonder and awe and, and happiness that I don't feel that compulsion. (laughs) Uh, I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with Lauren Groff. Um, You'll remember her from the novels, Matrix and Fates and Furies. And her new novel is titled The Vaster Wilds. Okay, before we started and before we hear an excerpt, um, you told me I praised this beautiful cover, which is something I, you know, I usually don't talk about. But this one was so unusual. Let's describe first what uh, what you ended up with as the cover for the book. 
Sure. It's a beautiful kind of um, destroyed tree with a one branch with gorgeous green leaves sort of interspersed along um, a 16th century font that says Lauren Groff of Astor Wilds. And you said, when I said, wow, that was really beautiful, you said it took us how many, <laughs> how many tries to get that cover? I don't know exactly. Helen Yentes, who's the, the uh, art designer, would know, but it, it's something like 85. I think there were 85 oh. separate covers until we found something that we all agreed on. <laughs> what I wanted was sort of like a Gallimard, um, like a, a French white cover with just the font in the very yeah. center. Yeah, I is, can picture that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's a bleak story. Not bleak, bleak and beautiful, which is what those covers are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, nobody wanted that. But <laughs> <laughs> nobody had your vision for this. Right. Well, so was it, was it always going to be something? I mean, what's cool about this cover is it does feel like the trees are both sinister and comforting and enveloping all at the same time. Do you see it like that? Oh, I love that you said that. Yes. But I had to get to that point after they so rudely uh, threw my, my opinion in the trash. No, I do see it like <laughs> that. I, I think it's a very beautiful tree, but, it's, but it, it is. I mean, I can see myself curling up on it. I, it just, it's very beautiful. I don't know where they found it. It's, it's strange. So I'd love to have you read the excerpt, but if, and, and we've talked, we've talked a bit about the fact that our character has fled the fort at Jamestown. It's 1609. Um, she she's running out into the forest. She doesn't really know where she's going, although she thinks she has kind of a path in mind. What else? What else can you say before we hear the excerpt? Uh, she is a servant girl who was a foundling. She, which means that she doesn't have any family at all. She was sent to the, the neighborhood hospital to be raised until four years old, which is what happened. And then she was shipped out to be a servant in the household of a, um, a goldsmith and his musical wife. Um, so, so one of the joys of this book was actually um, putting a lot of the, the mistress's friends into the book who are famous playwrights <laughs> and, and actors and you know, just sort of sneaking Elizabethan characters into a <laughs> small part that. of this book. She has a, we should say she has a kind of unformed identity, I guess. Um, she's young, which which is natural, but it also comes from the fact that she doesn't really have any familial history. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And she was treated as both a member of the family and not, right? And I think she, she lives in this sort of liminal world where she is expected to do a huge amount of household work, but she's also expected to not have her own autonomy. I mean, when she was brought to and asked her if she wanted to come, they just assumed she would come, all right? And she's not even paid money because the money goes back to the hospital that raised her up till about four years old. So mm. she's she's basically an indentured servant. And she because she was raised in the church of the time, and because she was born without a family as a poor servant girl, she believes she is not of the elect, right? She believes that 
um, that is evidence that God will not allow her into heaven. She's a girl. Women don't go to heaven <laughs> in early Anglican thinking, right? In early uh, Calvinist thinking. Um, but you know, she um, she she just believes that she's not she's not worthy. And through the course of the book, I hope that that's one of the things that sort of swings the other way. It does, and I really want to talk about her ideas about religion. Um, because they're so interesting. And she has plenty of time to think about it as she's traveling. I think we ought to say one more thing. We haven't used her name because I think as you've noted, she's called various things. Does she know her name? Does she know what what the name she was given? I can't remember. She was given a legal name uh, when she was found and brought to the to the hospital. Um, her real name is Lamentations Callet. Mm, right. Um, right. And then in the house, everyone gives her a nickname, which is uh, Zed, because she's the last and the least and the littlest. Um, and then, but none of these names are actually who she feels like she is right. herself. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. This is the excerpt, if you'll read. Sure. Now, knowing the comfort of sleep was awaiting her inside the cave, she got a small fire going and watched as the night poured full over the trees in the little valley she had passed through. And far away, the final cold flare of sun uplit and read the sharp spines of trees along a distant rise. Then all the light suddenly went out and the moon rose into its seat in the deep, dark blue sky. In the firelight, she took all of her good things out of her sack to care for them, because they were the only friends she had, and they each had begun to grow some character. The hatchet was blunt, but as faithful as a dog. The knife was two-faced and angry, but always ready. The flint was taciturn. The sack bemused. The coverlets pacific. The pewter cup over-eager and a little greedy. Off her feet, she took the twin boots, her best two friends, and the most doughty, even though the left boot had a nail working its way up from under the sole, and the nail worried her mightily. She picked the clinging seeds and sticks and dug the boots out of their thick coating of filth. Then she polished them with the hem of an interior gown until, in the small light, they gleamed. Having staved off her hunger for as long as she felt willing, she took two handfuls of the dried berries and some mushrooms and ate them together, which was a lovely taste, at the same time rich and tart and sweet and smoky. Then she lay down to sleep, having made her fire a little too hot and large because the malevolent darkness at the back of the cave still felt wrong to her, as though it were a single, large, dark, watchful eye. And though she felt her body yearning for sleep, her imagination sparked in a hundred directions, wondering what that blackness might contain. She was a fool, she knew, even as she populated the cave with beast and man. But she couldn't stop her imaginings. They filled her with pulses of fear. She tried to calm herself by listening to her blood in her ears and was terrified when, as she watched the fire flickering on the stone above, a sudden black eruption of bats squealed by in a swift, tarry stream and disappeared out of the mouth of the cave into the trees. Her heart thudded, but the bats did not return. Lauren Groff reading from her new novel, The Vaster Wilds. So I want to go back to what you said um, as we were setting up the the excerpt there about she she has some pretty 
specific ideas about her place in the religious, I guess, teachings and hierarchy. I mean, she's heard plenty of sermons, right, in churches that she's been brought to with this family. She's giving some thought to it as she travels. What does she believe? Well, at the beginning of the book, she believes what a servant girl like her would believe, which is, you know, she is not of the elect. Um, She exists uh, in order to serve and help other people. She is submissive, right? She is subservient. Um, she believes that God is the, the stern patriarch of um, the, the church of the time. And um, that material wealth is sort of the evidence of his love, right? And then, of course, there's no one more miserable than she is. <laughs> um, during the starving time, 1609, 1610, in, in Jamestown, I think it's something like uh, 80% of the people who were there died of not only starvation, but also murder and um, uh, raids of the Native Americans and uh other horrific things. I mean, people were punished by death. Um, mm-hmm. It was a really, really brutal and plague-ridden and malaria-ridden time. Uh, so she she is absolutely miserable when she takes off into the into the wilderness. And there's something about being in nature, mm-hmm. right? Being alone, or so she thinks, in nature that starts to work its beauty and magic on her. And she starts to understand a deeper, less uh, human-based understanding of God, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the the thing that she comes to understand is that religion is not necessarily God. Religion is an interpretation of God, right? Religion is um, a specific cohort of people's um, attempts to try to codify the great eternal mysteries in language uh, and in story. And of course, the great eternal mysteries being the great eternal mysteries, I mean, that it seems to be like a, a, a very ambitious thing to do, right? mm. <laughs> to, to, to try to put God into language. And so she, she pulls away from this conception of the church or even the conception that human beings could even understand what God is through the course of the book. I wanted the book to be as she is going through this um, propulsive run through the, the woods and she's sort of suffering some in the body. There's also this anagogical lift into mm-hmm. joy, into ecstasy at the same time. And, you know, anagogical means like toward the heaven, right? She's, 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 she's expanding her soul uh, as she is also um, disintegrating her body. I mean, she, she's becoming um, philosophical. She's what I think she's reaching some what, in that day would have been pretty radical conclusions. Like at one point she thinks for despite the horror in which papists were held in her country, she was quietly sure that though the trappings differed, still the God of the papists was the very same God to all Christians. Well, that certainly wasn't believed, right, back then? No. Yes, that's true. But I mean, she came into contact with papists. In or Catholics in uh, her London at that time, even though they were 
probably not overt about it. Right. right? And right. I mean, there are these theories that Shakespeare might have been secretly Catholic. Who knows? But uh, and he's definitely in the book. But uh, she she does know French people who were almost certainly raised in the Catholic religion at that time. Right. She does. She actually she knows and loves other people who. Um, maybe secretly hit a priest in their, in their houses, right? So she, I mean, she she is wise for her age um, in that case, for sure. But she also, she's just so disappointed by the godly men around her mm-hmm. or the men who think that they're godly around her. I mean, that devastating disappointment in the way that they act and the way that they think, I mean, that makes you into a radical, I think. Your reader's note says that you've been, quote, obsessed with the culpability of religion when it comes to the way we interact with nature. I drew a conclusion about what you were saying there, but I don't want to say it until I hear what you meant. Oh, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. (laughs) Nothing special, but (laughs) I just want to hear what you were thinking. Yeah, I... um... I believe that we are in the Anthropocene. We're deeply in this moment of um, rapid climate change because we have radically misinterpreted Genesis, right? And in Genesis, God, after having made everything in the seven days and made Adam and Eve, says, um, gives Adam and Eve dominion, right? Dominion over the the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air, you know, everything. And I think dominion is not the same as domination. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that we have interpreted that as the um, the permission to dominate, the permission to go out and strip mine, the permission to dump um, nuclear uh, reactor water into the ocean, um, and the wholesale uh, setting of the human experience on the planet at the very, very center of uh, life is is um, to our detriment. And it's from, I believe, this radical misreading of what should be cultivation, what should be, you know, um, love and not an act of hatred. I, I was curious about what you what you were reading from from this part of your thinking of conceiving the book, what what kind of religious tracts? And, you know, as I'm asking this, I'm thinking, I think I asked you this <laughs> when you were here for Talking <laughs> Volumes and we were talking about Matrix. Um, yeah, I think you did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so tell me what you've been, what you've been drawn to as you're kind of wrestling with these ideas of religion. So the funny thing is, I'm looking around myself desperately um, to, to find the books <laughs> in that your office. I, I yeah. looked at right? but I'm actually not in my office. I'm in the downstairs ah. library, and all those books are upstairs, alas. Um, so you know, uh, and I also read them all in 2017 and 18. Uh, okay, is, like, it's like making. I'm. This is one of those moments where I'm having a panic attack because I can't remember. <laughs> oh, the titles don't panic! Of Wait a minute. So, but but let me understand this. So. The books that you were reading to write Matrix have also have also been they informed the way this this novel came together. Is that right? Oh yes, actually no. So I wrote Matrix and the Best Royals, and a third book um, 
at the same time. And I see them as not a trilogy, obviously, because they're so profoundly different in right. terms of the, the characters and the, the themes and the language and the style. Everything is very profoundly different. They stand on their own. Um, but they are united in a lot of the ideas that they're pushing toward. Um, these ideas of uh, human and God uh, interactions, these ideas of the ways that women have been born into cages, right? Mm -hmm. That um, they have to sort of feel their way around ideas of the Anthropocene ideas. These are all these ideas that are sort of circulating through all three of the books. And uh, what I really want to do, if, if this third book ends up ever being written, I'm on like the ninth complete draft of it. Um, I wanted to sort of see about a thousand years of Western civilization through these, these female voices and, and through um, these female voices really wrestling with the idea of God. Is there something about the third book? not of a trilogy, but but being conceived kind of of the same time in your writing life. Is there something about it that is more difficult to bring to fruition? Or is that pretty common that you will go through draft after draft? I do go through draft after draft. I think Fates and Furies was something like 13 to 15 um, complete drafts. But uh. this one, you know, this one, it came at such a hard time. And it, it was the one... The first draft was the least finished, for sure, when I finished all of the first drafts all about the same time. I think the problem with this one is that it's so close to my soul <laughs> that mm. I actually need a little bit of distance from it in order to write it. And, and we'll see if I ever get that distance or if I'm ever able to do it. If not, that's totally fine. It'll be a diptych and not a trip. <laughs> Wait a minute. I, I want to make sure I understand this. You're not saying that you're writing these books simultaneously, are you? Yes, I am. Yeah, I do. I write all my books simultaneously with other books. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So are you saying you were writing The Vaster Wilds while you were writing Matrix and this? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. How in the heck? <laughs> How do you do it? So I prefer writing multiple things at once. It's the way that my brain works because um, I have uh, I have OCD. And so one of the things that I do in order to avoid it is that I go to the project that is most urgent and exciting, right? Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes when you are obsessive, you can obsess about one sentence for four years. <laughs> um, uh -huh. And so I have to not do that. And I have to not do that by having multiple projects. The other thing too is, and the beautiful thing about this is that the projects talk to each other, right? The projects are sort of secretly in silent communion and they're making each other stronger underneath the surface when I'm sleeping, when I'm going for my runs, when I'm going for my swims, right? That's what happens with these books. And it's such a sheer glory to know that one book is actually the thing that solved a riddle for another book. Um, so I'm always writing multiple books at once. In fact, the books that I have in the world, they're only the visible ones that are in the world. I have abandoned probably twice as many <laughs> finished drafts of other oh books. That just It's not my time to write them right yet. I mean, maybe they'll come back to me. Maybe they won't. I was going to say never to go back to them or yes, to go back to them someday. No. Yeah. I mean, nothing is ever abandoned, right? It's just, it's just a foray into something like an attempt that I like failure. I think failure is good, mm -hmm. which 
Um, yeah. it's, it's part of my like process, my OCD process to try to, to fail as much as possible. Right. <laughs> um, right. In order to get through this like obsessive compulsive uh, desire to stay stuck in one thing. Um, so instead of doing that, I sort of, I, I, I open myself to this idea that nothing's ever really finished. It's just kind of abandoned. Um, um, and all of the books that I have in the world, you know, they've gotten to a point where I'm really happy with them. They're as close to what I wanted them to be as I could possibly bring them. But that doesn't mean that they're dead when they're out in the world, right? They're still like growing in my head in the back of my mind and maybe something else will come of it later. Maybe I'll, I'll be writing the prologue 15 times over the course of his life, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Oh my gosh. Uh, just a couple more questions. Um, I, when you were here for Talking Volumes, we spent some time talking about your reading life and you described how many books you read. And I think you described this group of fellow friends and readers where you set, you know, a list and you work your way through it and you're in conversation about the books. Do I remember this right? Absolutely, yes. How's yeah. that going? It's, it's just a trio. It's Laura Vandenberg and Elliot Holt. And it's so good. Um, we just were in the middle of Moby Dick. I finished it. They're still catching up. I've already read it, but it's just the greatest book on the planet. I mean, it's really the most gruesome and funny and wild. It has all of life in it. It has a scathing indictment of America, right? It's just amazing. <laughs> and I love just sitting there with my brilliant friends and, and talking our way through these books. It's just great. Yeah. So what are you reading right now? Well, they're in Moby, Moby Dick. Dick. Okay. Yes, yes, yeah. What are you and moving on that, to? Well, we haven't quite decided yet, but if you have an idea, I would love to hear it. <laughs> it has to be a classic that yeah. one of us hasn't read yet. Is there one anything, you, Lauren, you haven't read? Is there? A, there's oh, nothing yeah. I've read that you haven't read. I know that. Oh, there's a lot. No. There's a lot I haven't read. <laughs> yeah. Like what? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that the most glorious thing about books is that you'll never come to the end yes. of the genius books yes. in the world? I mean, that is so <laughs> incredible. It makes me so happy to know that there will always be something out oh, there me to, too. to fall in love with. Yeah. Me too. How much Edith Wharton have you read? I find myself going back to her every summer for some reason. I don't know why. I love her. Yes, <laughs> I've read too. a lot of her, but I want to go back to some of some of her work. I think she, you know, I read her mostly as a very young person, as mm -hmm. someone in college, and then uh, she's she's different. She changes. I guess mm -hmm. maybe that's one of the ideas behind what a classic is, right? It's, it's something that changes as you change right. um, as a reader. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely want to go back to her. I want to go back to Henry James. You know, I want to go back to uh, Toni Morrison, right? I want to go, I, I want to go back and read The Inferno as a 45 year old because I read it uh, and it changed my life as a 26 year old, right? So they're just, it's just the possibilities are endless and glorious. Lauren, thank you so much for the conversation. Uh, I really appreciate it, especially on a on a difficult day. <laughs> <laughs> the details of day. which will be left to the imagination. <laughs> but thank you. I loved our conversation, and, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next novel to continue on. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you. Lauren Groff's new novel is titled The Vaster Wilds. 